Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. I have to tell you something, people. The one thing that's weird moving back from L.A. to New Jersey is we went to a party two Saturdays ago. And I wanted to get take beer with me. And now in L.A., you can stop anywhere for beer. You can go to CVS. You can go to the supermarket. You can go to Trader Joe's. You can go to a little store in the corner. You run in. You get it. You're out. It makes it easy. Here, I actually had to go to a specific, and they're called liquor stores. And they sell beer, wine, and liquor. And you have to go. You can't just go into the supermarket. And it's weird because you go in, and you're like, wait a second. And the craziest thing is, on Sundays, they close at 5. So if you're like... Going to a party Sunday night and you forget to get booze, you're screwed, and I don't think you can get it. So, anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest was on a few years back, and he's uh, he's back on today, and he has a great book that just came out. We're going to talk about his career. And my guest is Fred Stoller. How you doing, Fred? I'm good, good to uh, talk to you again, really. Right? Yeah, now you were just back in New York City like last week, was it, or two weeks ago? <laughs> I think. Wow, I'm so discombobulated. It's been about a week I've been back. It was exhausting, uh, doing a lot of podcasts, and I'm from there, so the pressure, next time I won't put on Facebook, <laughs> I'm in New York, because everyone, a lot of great people, but all my friends are there, so it was good, but I, I got a little run down, and I had to see so many people running around, uh, you know, not sure how the trains work, how to go to Hoboken to see Artie Lang, his podcast. So it was fun, but crazy. So this is a little bit more relaxed now. Well, for you, I mean, yeah, because you go in and you're going to promote and do different stuff. And then you are you have friends back there. So for you, it's really you're getting pulled in like six different ways. And it's just like, I want to just relax. Yeah, yeah. You, again, it's hard to do that. I thought giving myself six days, but... Yeah, it was uh, running around and uh, seeing my niece and uh, taking her and her fiancé to eat. And, yeah, you just want to decompress. And, again, it's not the worst thing in the world. I could be on an assembly line. So (laughs) it's not – I'm not complaining, but – it, it is, you know, I was touring with Norm MacDonald for a while, opening for him, and I like that because your name's not advertised. So, you know, you just have these wacky relatives that want, they think you're a big celebrity and all other celebrities and invest in some crazy scheme they have or, <laughs> you know, so just silly stuff like that. But it's it's good to be back. Now, you're originally from Brooklyn, right? Correct. Okay, now, now, when did, because I want to talk, I want to get to your book, but I, when, I want to get people to know, when did you start to do stand-up, and what, and what got you into doing comedy? Were you always funny, or what, what made you gravitate to it? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, uh, my mother freaked out when I quit college, Kingsborough Community College, not a big one, to pursue stand-up comedy, because this was like, wow, 78 and now comedy is almost mainstream. It's more an anomaly if someone doesn't do stand-up or doesn't think they could do it or hasn't tried it. Because, you know, it, with YouTube, the Internet, cable, people see all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> but when I did it, the, the reason I did it is, is I was very shy and depressed. My mother goes, you're so depressed. How are you going to make people laugh? It made no sense to her. And I understand why it made no, it made no sense to me. But um, early on, I knew the real world wasn't for me. I was just, 
paralyzed with fear. What am I going to do? How do you? How could you be a dentist or an architect? I, how do you do things? You know, uh, just the way it was brought up. Not a lot of confidence, but I remember I, I'd see character actors on TV that reminded me of me, like pe weird people on Barney Miller or. You know, the Bob Newhart show is a depressed patient. They go, I, I could do that, you know, but I didn't know how you did that. I thought, you know, your parents had to start you on the Brady Bunch. You know, right. I we weren't savvy because we didn't have all these behind-the-scenes things on e-entertainment and how people have careers. <clears throat> Excuse me. So then my older sister took me, I stuck along with her to a club called Pips in Brooklyn, a comedy club, and actually Richard Lewis and Billy Crystal were performing, and they hadn't really made it big yet, and my sister's friend explained about stand-up, that there's a club in Manhattan called The Improvisation, and people like the late Freddie Prince, Jimmy Walker, did their act there, then they get on The Tonight Show, then they got to be on a sitcom. So then I saw a path of something I thought I could do, even though I was not funny. Excuse me to be a stand-up comedian. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have no right. button on my phone. But, <clears throat> but I started doing research, like getting comedy albums, and it was so bad, uh, you know, I thought you had to be from a poor neighborhood. I'd listen to Jimmy Walker, Richard Pryor, and my act was pretty, pretty bad. But then I... I just uh, took time off, and then I, I tried it again, and I would just go to the improv and hang out all night, and they'd put you on at the end, and, and I couldn't look at the audience. My head would be down, and I would make looses with the mic stand. I mean, the cord, I was, I, I was just so nervous. <coughs> and, and I would just do things that were really from my life, things like my mother would say, like... Um, when I quit college, she goes, what do you, you know, what, I said, what good would a college degree do? She goes, you'll be able to see your college graduate. I go, like, I'm not able to say it now. Like, I try. I go, I'm a cacagaculate. <laughs> and, and also, she couldn't understand that I quit college to be a comedian. And, and she wouldn't tell anyone that. She goes, I'm going to tell them you're retarded. Because that was easy to explain. There's something wrong with Freddie. So that became a joke. So, my act slowly built on being this depressed, weird guy, and that became my persona during the co 80s comedy boom. So I just kind of, like I said, I never had dreams to be George Carlin or the Carnegie Hall. I just uh, fell into it during the 80s comedy boom and thinking it would get me into acting. So eventually I came to L.A. and just started auditioning and trying to find my way that way now when did you get your first tv you know you did letterman and that was a big show but i mean at the time in the 80s there were so many shows like comedy on the road and even at the improv and all them i know you did letterman i think in 86 now how did that come how did that come to fruition were you doing stand-up for a while were you in new york then or were you dad you moved to la already oh no i i moved to la in 88 um you know, I just think uh, the people whose job it is to book stand-ups, they just go to the clubs, and they kind of know who's who. And you have to run your set by them. And, again, in 88, or oh, the 80s, 
there wasn't a gazillion comedians. So if you were fairly unique, people, you know, they make it. You, you people would sort of know who you were. And <clears throat> excuse me, I did it the night the space shuttle blew up, <laughs> where people canceled, and and they needed a guest. So it was a last minute thing, and I, I ran down and had to run my act by the producer. And it was just, uh, I was going, uh, wow, no one's going to watch this. They're too depressed about the space shuttle. It won't be rerun. But you can't say no when they call you last minute to be on Letterman's show. So, yeah, that was a crazy thing. What was the uh, crowd, Was what was the crowd's... Um feeling in the crowd that night because a big tragedy did happen that they and like what was letterman's <laughs> feeling like you know that's pressure for first of all you're a young comic that's gotta be pressure just to be your Absolutely. first appearance and then well, the, the crowd like that well first of all yes it, w it was harrowing enough to do it to be called and run over there with two hours notice and you know what am i gonna wear and um some comics like that because you don't have time to stew on something you just do it so and also i couldn't do anything depressing which was half my act you know <laughs> i had to run it by the office uh by them in the office so it was weird i think today they would cancel the show obviously but this is before 9 11 and scrolls on you know on the tv where uh so they just did it. Now, all day long, you know, they have the news, but they didn't have that then. So I remember Letterman started the show, I don't mean to be irreverent, today's a tragic day in American history, but here's Fred Stoller. No, he didn't say that, but he did say the first part. And um, so it was just, yeah, it was just lunacy. It was just everyone was somber, and everyone in the office was walking around stunned at the Letterman office. So it was just... Uh, yeah, like I said, it's the, it was a tragic day in American history, and it was crazy that he did a show. And I remember years later, he Letterman was on Tom Snyder had a late night show, and he said, "What was?" He goes, "The worst night I ha ever had to do was the night the space shuttle blew up." It'd be funny if he said because Fred Stoller was on it. <laughs> so now, how did you adjust your act for that night? Because as you said, you only have two minutes. You have your act, but then all of a sudden, it's like you have to do so much time and if your act was depressing i mean how do you hit that curveball per se and get and get ready well you know i i yeah i i just adjusted where i threw out jokes that they said okay these are acceptable and uh you, you just uh like i said it's almost okay that it's so you have no time to prepare because you don't have as much time to freak out as you might if it was a day before. Right. So now you did Letterman, and then you said you moved to L.A. in 88. Okay, now, do, does things start happening? And, you know, are you, do you start booking some roles? Or are, you getting, are you still doing a lot of stand-up? Are you getting on stage <laughs> because you did have the Letterman credit, which is a big credit? Did you get, did you get some L.A. respect when you got out? Yeah, yes and no. It's 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 fierce Los Angeles. It's everyone in the world, you know. It doesn't matter if you have a Letterman credit cuz Seinfeld, Robin Williams, you know, you name it is Jay Leno wants to do stage time. So, it was a little fierce. I mean, I did get some respect, 
Um, but, um, <coughs> excuse me, and acting was kind of slow at first because there was a writer's strike. So everything was shut down. You know, if the writer's union shuts them down, you can't uh, do anything. So I had to go on the road, and it was a little rough because in New York during the comedy boom, I could uh, do Tuesday through, uh, no, no, I could do around town and do a lot of spots. But like I said, it's so competitive in Los Angeles. It's just uh, um, Tuesday through Sunday, you have to go out of the town and I'd have to headline. Because at a Letterman credit, I'd headline, but my act would like, it was very depressive and low key and subtle. And they'd much prefer a high energy in your face, dirty, Little local guys, so they switch me sometimes with the with that guy. So I didn't really, I wasn't in love with headlining and doing the road. I wanted to be a character actor, like I said. So it was a rough adjustment coming to L.A. Mostly because to to afford to live there, I had to leave there and uh, do the road, which now, I, I I didn't love. Now, when you moved to L.A. And you, well, I want to talk about your book, and then we'll get back to your career. When you moved to L.A., how did the 13th Young, how did the Comedian Special come about? Because, you know, I know I read, you know, as you said, I've read some reviews of your book and stuff, and you talk about how big it was. And I remember, you know, I mean, I was basically starting out to do stand-up at that time. And it was always a cool thing when you watched HBO and you saw, you know, the different comics. How did that come? How did you end up getting on that? And did you know it was a big deal? Because everyone's fighting for it. Oh yes. Um, if people who's who some comedy fans that may be listening may not be aware, this was before um, you know. This was before Comedy Central even, and there weren't as many venues, so it was a big deal to be on the HBO Young Comedian special. Um, I remember, uh, well, as I said in the book, um, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Sam Kennison, Dice Clay, Bob Saget, Roseanne, <coughs> all broke from the HBO Young Comedian special. And there were a few that were hosted by Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> and I remember I auditioned in New York for him and I go, I thought I had a good set. I said, what do you think? He goes, you're too low-key, okay? And, and, and he walked away, and I was, like, crushed. So <clears throat> they were a big deal when I was in New York. So, and and they would do it, like the Smothers Brothers hosted one. Um, uh, all these different people hosted, uh, big people, these young comedian specials. So then when I came to Los Angeles, I... Um, it was sort of similar to what I was saying about New York with Letterman. Like, <laughs> I, I got a manager, and and they would just you try to get showcased for the executives at HBO, who every year would look for the five or six new fresh young comedians that HBO said, "Hey, take a look at these people." So yes, it, it was a big deal because I knew a lot of people broke from them. So. Did you? And, yeah. where, where did you audition for, or did you did you know you were auditioning for, it or was it through it some time of people seeing you at different places that you got booked on it? Um, from what I remember, it was so long ago. I think if you were lucky to have a manager or get on what they call showcases at the Improv, 
Like, now NBC is going to look at new young comics, or this is a showcase for whatever. Um, it was a big deal to be on a showcase. And I probably was at one for um, the Young Comedian Special. One thing I write about my book. See, the book basically, it's a Kindle single, and it's not intimidating. It's it's only a dollar ninety nine, like my Seinfeld year was about writing on Seinfeld. Is uh, one thing I, I write it in it is uh, David Spade, who him and Rob Schneider broke. They got discovered from the, this Young Comedian Special. Uh, some people didn't. There was triumph and tragedy from the six on it. David Spade had auditioned twice before, and he came close, and he auditioned again. He had another showcase at the Los Angeles Improv, and um, it's just, uh, they had their five they chose, and he wasn't on it, but Dennis Miller, who hosted it, was pushing for him, and, and um, some producers were. So they decided, let's make it six on the showcase, and David Spade got on the showcase. I mean, on the Young Comedian special. Now, I read that you had said, you know, Miller did a longer set that night. Did that change the tone of the crowd? Because, you know, usually it is a quicker set, and the comedians are a little bit older. I mean, you know, Rodney, you know Rodney's going to go up there for a few minutes, and Rodney's Rodney, and he's easy to follow, and he sets the table. Uh, I you know, not that I was aware of. I, I think I wasn't really thinking in those terms. I'm usually just pacing backstage, peeking out to see who the how the crowd is. I'm a wreck anyway, so it may have changed it, but uh, I wasn't aware when I was sort of freaking out, waiting to go on front of the crowd. Well, when did you find out you were booked on it? Did your manager tell you? Was it? And were you excited, or were you like, "Oh crap, I better do well"? I mean, what went through your mind? Um, I yeah, I was excited, but a wreck, and you know, yeah, it's the pressure. Like one thing I talk about in the book is the night before, you know, I, I went to practice my set at the Improv, and some annoying, aggressive comedian. You know, the manager goes, could Fred work out as young comedian special? He goes, no, you know, and he's really a jerk about it and putting me down is on stage. And then another comedian, they really got in my head. Come on, it's got to be better than that. This is HBO, the young comedian special. So I was freaking out. So, yeah, you, you freak out. Like like I said before with the with the Letterman, it was good. It was just a day before, but it was probably about a month I knew I had it. So just, uh, yeah, like anything, you know, I remember, you know, as I wrote the book, Rob Schneider, uh, he lived, I think, I forgot where he lived in the Valley, but he got a hotel right by where it was in Santa Monica to be close to it, to be relaxed. So, yeah, we all have our, we were all freaking out, all six of us. Now it was it was you Schneider uh, Spade Jan Karam, um, uh, Warren Drake Sather and Warren Thomas and some of those names you never heard of and they're just as talented but you know the this book Five Minutes to Kill I interviewed family members managers club owners other comedians uh, relatives of the six. And it's just, you know, circumstances, tragedy, why some made it. Now, I don't, are you a sports fan? Yes. Um, I made it, to me, this was like those, 
30 by 30. So instead, those little mini documentaries where, let's say you have the Detroit Walt College team, like Jalen Rose and Chris Weber made it, and these guys were just as good, but, you know, I love those stories, why they didn't make it to the pros when they were just as good, or what happened. You know, so there's the equivalent of that. We were, you know, a big college team with prospects, and any one of us could have made it big in the NBA, and some did, but what have followed them from the Young Comedian special up to to now? Well, now, Drake Sander and Warren Thomas are no longer with us, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't want to, yeah, I guess we gave away the ending. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, yes, they sadly are not with us. So, um, yeah, so I, I interviewed their widows, um, Drake's kids. And it was very uh, an interesting experience because I got to know their families. And it was just researching this was emotional, uh, surreal, weird. Um, some people were mad at me. Some didn't want to talk about stuff. So I felt like a detective, like researching the story, yeah. What made you decide to write the book? I mean, you know, I know you wrote the Seinfeld and you had, you had a, another uh, book before that, and they all have dealt with your careers. One about you being a character, a guest actor, one in the Seinfeld, your year on Seinfeld. What what made you decide to write this book? Was it something that you had thought about for a long time, or did you one day just have an epiphany, or what happened? Yeah, I always thought about this. I always, well, I was, fa- I remember uh, being with Rod Schneider. And we were we were doing a cameo in some movie, Little Man, with the Waynes brothers. And, and Warren Thomas had just died. This was like, wow, uh, 2005. And Drake had died. And I go, wow, two people from the, our special. And I remember, I, I, I was th- it was well, it was called the 13th annual Young Comedian Special. And I always thought it's 13. That's bad luck. And um, um. You know, is there a curse to our special, you know, almost like, because I don't remember a lot of other young comedian specials where two of the people were deceased. Right. Um, so it's, uh, so I always, I always thought, you know, that'd be a good idea for a documentary, but, you know, at my stage in my life and career, it's hard to, it's not easy to put together, but I thought, what could I do where I could just express myself? And I had success with Kindle singles of my Seinfeld year. So I thought they were receptive to me. So I just threw the idea to them with an email, and they loved it. I, I, I guess I always liked the idea. I love all showbiz stories. And this had such diversity and trajectory of lives and careers. You had Jan Cam, the beautiful woman, who she was ahead of her time because Female comedians were a little bit more like aggressive. They were all very beautiful, like Elaine Boozler, attractive, Carol Leifa, but they were, she was the first, I think, beautiful woman who never got credit for, uh, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, before the Amy Schumers and Sarah Silvermans and Whitney Cummings. And so, yeah, so I, I, I like that there was triumph and tragedy with this. I didn't like that it was tragedy, but um, I thought it was such an interesting array of personalities and lives that I, I, I wanted to follow them all and you know I, I realized through writing this that except for some like you said are no longer with us that it was still 
were the same. You know, what does make it mean? And I was examining what make it mean success and why some were, why some weren't. So, so yeah, long-winded story. I always liked that idea of uh, following these six. Now, when you sit there and you have this idea for this book, and 89 is a long time ago, where do you decide to start on your research? I mean, and luckily for you, there's the internet, so you can find stuff out. I mean, if there wasn't an internet, it would it would be impossible to catch up with these people. But do you do you have a like a did you have like an outline of what you're going to do, or did you just sit there and get each character and like let's say look through their IMDb, or how did you attack getting the formula for the book? Well, I started meeting with people who knew the other people in their stories, and then. I started figuring out with each one of us what pivotal points were. Um, like with Warren Thomas, for example, a black guy, he he was brought in to be the to meet Lauren Michaels after the special. And one thing I learned is that when you meet with Lauren Michaels, it's a it's almost an initiation. He makes you wait hours, like three four hours, and and they needed a black guy, but he said, screw this, and he left. And then Chris Rock ended up getting his spot. So I knew that's a pivotal point. So I just kind of had a loose outline of pivotal points in each person's life, Rob Schneider, David Spade, getting to shoot me. And so then I just uh, filled it in with... Um, uh, then when I knew those pivotal points, then I got more details and just tried to get as many of these, like I said, club managers, uh, people like, like Rick Messina, who managed these people, people, um, family members to fill it in and just uh, tell the story. So it kind of wrote itself in a way, um, just uh, getting all the details. Now, you put it together. Now, how did you come up with the title? Just because that's what you got was five minutes. or I mean, it's a great title. It's five minutes to kill. But how did you decide that would be the title? Or did you have to go through that with Amazon? It, oh, that, it, was, it was hard because I was working with this really great editor, great guy. And I, I didn't know what to call it at first. At, at first, I thought the comedy class of 89. And, and then people go, that's a good subtitle, you know. And so I, I, I just kept coming up with a list and list and running them by friends and yeah, that one just misses or and I, I think uh, it's just uh, and I, like I said make list of 30 of them and then I'd be, be, before after the laughs you know friends would give me some some were lame some were and I think uh, I, I think I was just looking at other books I had and one of them was called Moving Pictures about some guy in show business. So I said, oh, I get it. You could be sort of on it. And yes, so then five minutes to kill is obviously you have five minutes and you've got to make your mark. And he goes, I love it, I love it. So so then we had to come up with the subtitle. Um, and uh, that was hard. That's So the, the subtitle that... Uh, Amazon Publishing ended up using was, let me see if I remember this, um, how the HBO Young Comedian special changed the lives of 1989's funniest six comics. 
that's not on the, the cover, but it's on the link <coughs> explaining what five minutes to kill means. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Some, some titles come easier. Like my Seinfeld year was hit me right away because that was my year writing on Seinfeld and what that was like. Now, so, yeah. what do you, I mean, what makes you, fuels you to write these books? I mean, because you have this, you've had a successful acting career, you know, you, you did, you had, were successful with stand-up. What makes you want to write the books? Is it because you just love writing? Is it because you just love, you know, getting the facts out there? Or what makes you, what, what stirs, steers you to writing the books? I think it was, um, as grateful as I am that I appeared on a bunch of sitcoms and you're, you're fitting into other people's puzzles. I like just telling a story. I think, as I said with this, it's something that, well, yeah, I had to be a little aggressive and nudge people to sit and talk with me, but it's something I could do. I don't have to wait for permission to do an acting gig or an audition or for someone to wait for someone to want me. It's a way to express myself. And like I said, I just, I just love reading showbiz books. I like reading about writers more than, like, I like reading about F. Scott Fitzgerald more than his books himself. So I think it's something, as you get older and the parts die down, something you can do where each day I can sit and put words down. And it's, it's more dimensional. It's more, it's deeper than, let's say, doing a stand-up act where you're following some, aggressive comedian and, and you've got to kill and even you know you could just paint the picture let it air out you know get a little emotional and deeper than say where you've got to just knock it out of a park joke 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 so i really like expressing myself in this venue it's a little bit more relaxed than a club or um yeah and it's it's more even though this story was five other people's stories I just like to tell a story and from my point of view so I'm finding this very rewarding this path I'm going on it's because as I get older I'm not trying to sell a romantic comedy or a, a sitcom where you got to have all this stuff all America it could be more niche this thing and more yeah unique as opposed to crazy mass appeal now which I'm not good at now, when you when you're writing the book, as you said, there's six characters, and you're the writer. So, how do you choose? Like, you have to keep it balanced. How do you keep yourself where you don't want to put too much in about yourself? Because everyone's like, God, I thought this was about six comics, but they don't want to put too right. too little in yourself because then they're like, Man, I want to hear my book, Fred. I want, I, you know, I thought this was about six comics. How did you find the balance when you sat there and did it? Did you sit there and go, Okay, I'm going to do this many pages on this person? Or this many pages in this person. How did you work that the, so it's consistent? With no, like like I said, the story sort of writes itself because, like I said, with the uh, the outline, with the pivotal points, you just want you know everyone has their story, and what happened after. Um, so it kind of uh, it wasn't easy, but it was easier because all I had to do was like listen to people. And I know my story, and I learned about others. So just sitting with all, you know, trying to get everyone. With David Spade, I spoke to a writer who wrote on another show of his, uh, an ex-manager. So, 
yeah, it was, um, yeah, it would be ridiculous if it was mostly me. So it kind of, like I said, the story just tells itself where, you know, it's not like a crazy detail where it's everyone, what high school they went to and, and talking to high school people. And it just was enough. Why I like a Kindle single is it's, it, it's like the book's like, let's say 84 pages where, it's the, it's just a, a book would have been probably too much of, of the six of us, like two three hundred pages. But this is just the right amount. Now, now when you're putting it together, who do you do? You start off with a master list of who you want to contact, and then whittle it down to people that want to talk to you or not. Or how do you try to figure out who you're going to talk to, and and how does that uh, go? Because there's got to be some people that you know. I mean, David's been on a ton of shows. You know, you got to pick a writer. Do you get a writer you know, or how did you put the list together? You just get who you can get. Yeah, I had a wish list, and some people were suspicious. Some said, "I don't want to talk about Warren. It's too personal." It's like you just, yes, you, I have a wish list, and, and most of it came through. Some of it was funny, like this one comedian, he, it was like, I, you know, a Seinfeld episode I wrote was Kenny Banya based on a real guy. You know Bruce Murnoff? Yeah, I, I, I know of him from the, the old days, yeah. yeah he, he, in real life, gave me an Armani suit he, that doesn't fit him anymore. And he says, all you have to do is take me out for a meal and we're even. So I took him to Jerry's Deli and he he said, um, I want to say, I'm just having soup. I'm going to save the meal for another time. <laughs> so so then it became the Seinfeld episode. I pitched his soup a meal. So, so, so it became similar in that uh, one guy, he, he knew people from the special. So we went to this. He picked this expensive sushi place in Malibu, and he said, I'll take it easy. I'll just have appetizers. It came to about, about 70 bucks. So so it was kind of weird, like, taking people out to eat. And so then this guy started taking advantage, where he goes, oh, I forgot other things. Could you meet me at this waffle place? And then he had some waffles, and and, and he, he, he kept saying, all right, I give you more information. I, I, it's a coffee also. So then he connected me with someone who connected me with Rob Schneider, and he said, now I, I want a real meal at Nobu or whatever it's called. <laughs> so he was like extorting me. So it's like a detective. You just go on any lead you can, and uh, you write the story. The story is basically who you can get. Now, there's some people that would have been much better to get, not better, but ideal, but it's like, yeah, you just make a list, and you just like, you know, Steve Scrovan, who, who, um, who's been on your show, great guy, he, I said, who can I get, do you know any guys that have worked with uh, David Spade, any writers, and he said, oh, I know this guy that worked with him on, um, uh, I forgot the show he did, um, and after Just Shoot Me, um, Rules of Engagement. So you just bug again. This is not what I'm good at. This is why I stopped doing a podcast. I'm sure you. It's not one of your favorite things. Bugging people, you know what I mean, and uh, just bugging people to be on it. And uh, so it was just like being a detective. Some people were great. Some people it just fell into place. 
How, now, how do you know Scroban? You guys have a good friendship, and he directed your, the movie you were in, uh, Fred and Vinny, about my, oh, I know, I know Vinny D'Angelo also. He, I remember. You knew him personally? Yeah, I remember working, and it's funny, you'll like this, because you knew Vinny very well. I remember doing a show, some crappy one-nighter in New Jersey, <laughs> and after the show, you know, I had a few beers, and you know, Vinny liked to smoke the ganj, and we were in his car, and we were listening to jazz. <laughs> And the artist who was, he was playing was a guy named John Coliani. Well, years later, I, I don't know, I was sitting there one night and I thought, I wonder what happened to this John Coliani. Turns out he's from, he went to this, for one year he went to the same college as me. So I sent him a message on Facebook. I became friends and I said, hey, I said, I knew Vinny D'Angelo. Would you, yeah, do, wow. would you do my show? And now he's a big jazz guy. He's played for Woody Allen's band. He's played for a bunch of people. Wow. But that was how I knew Vinny. And I still remember Vinny also. We were doing a show at the now, well, it didn't last that long, the Mount Laurel Comedy Cabaret. And Vinny used to do that bit with the phone before, like, cell phones were really. yes. And it was my mom's birthday. Well, what did he do? He would take a phone and he would connect it to the sound system. Yeah, and something. And make prank calls. Yeah, and he prank called, but it was my mom's <laughs> birthday. And he called and he had the whole crowd sing happy birthday to my mom. <clears throat> yeah, Vinny was, for those who obviously don't know who he is, people don't get it because he was a stand-up, but then he became sort of agoraphobic where he he didn't want to leave the house, and he li lived in some, um, what's it called, uh, attic or something for free. Um, and he, he, he briefly did stand-up, and it was like reading from joke books or making prank calls. <clears throat> but he, I, I, so Steve Scroban put up the money and directed this movie about my friendship with Vinny, because I described Vinny, as the adoring parent I never had. Since he became agoraphobic later in life, but he was the happiest agoraphobic, he lived vicariously through me. He loved hearing anything, like I went to the video store, get out, man, no way, get out, you know, or I went to the post office. And then he came to stay with me, and that was uh, not so much fun. It was sad because we were friends and we became estranged. So Steve Scroban, no, in the comedy boom of the 80s, we just did all these gigs together, and Steve Scroban is the most normal comedian. Oh, I know. I always said, I, I told Scroban, I said, you play college football, you're a really good-looking guy, you're well-read, why are you doing, why did you even do stand-up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, what was his answer? He just, the hell, it still makes no sense. I know. I just, you know? <laughs> he has no neuroses. He's the greatest guy. Well, he's done very well for himself. He wrote on Raymond for nine years. You know, and he's on another show that's in its third year, a kid's show. So he's done very well for himself. But yeah, it, 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 how did that guy become a comedian? I know. Now, I mean, he, he did well in it, the comedy boom. But uh, yeah, now, <clears throat> you know, maybe you know, do you know the name Mike Egan? Yeah, I know, Mike. In fact, I worked. I, I I didn't do stand up for a long time. When I was coming back east, before I, I moved back now, but when I would come back to see my girlfriend, there was a comedy club right near our house, a Scarpati room. So I would just do twenty minute guest sets or get booked. And I remembered Egan, but I did a show with Egan there just uh, about three years ago. Well, what happened? And, and I, I I only mentioned his first name, but what happened was. Um, 
and I talk about this in the book, but I remember I was beating myself up. I'm a loser. Robbie doesn't want me, you know. And and I, and I did at the time. I didn't know. I was doing a gig with him somewhere in Jersey. I don't know where any of these places are. I would just you'd meet at the improv, and a comedian with a car would drive you. So any of these places in Jersey, I have no idea how you get there or anything. You just you know the other. So he drove me. And we stopped, and he had a, a son from another relationship who was 13 at the time. And I remember the kid, or maybe he was younger, I don't remember, but the kid was so proud of Mike because Mike was going to be on some cable access show. And then it hit me, if you have a son, you don't walk around saying you're a piece of shit, you're a loser. You have to be strong. The kid is excited about anything the father does. He doesn't go, oh, my father just does this. So because of uh, Mike Egan, I ended up coming up with an imaginary son I called Mitchell because uh, I got the idea, you got to be strong and your son is part of anything you do. They don't judge, you know, oh, my dad only did this. So my long-winded story, I give credit to Mike Egan, my imaginary son, inspired by him. Oh, this is real comedic. People going, what the hell is this guy talking about? <laughs> no, and, uh, yeah, no, you no. know, just the behind the scenes. Oh yeah, well now, now the stand up. Now you know, you did you stop doing stand up for a while? Yeah, I, I I think you know, like I said earlier, I was always shy and uh, I never was in love with being in front of people. And speaking of Jersey, this guy's like Big Daddy Graham, and he's aggressive. You know, you got to have that personality to stand up I think and love being up there and and, and my dream was always to act and now I, I enjoy writing more so I, you can't dabble you, you can't but then speaking of your town I stopped doing stand up and then my book maybe we'll have you back came out and someone sought me out I didn't know there's a thing called the Jewish book festival circuit and I had to do my act again and one of the places I stopped in was uh, Cherry Hill. That's where I grew place. up. That's where I grew up. Yeah, so <laughs> I remember uh, there was this big uh, Jewish center in, in Cherry Hill. So I remember they were all nervous because I went for a walk. I needed the bathroom. Richard Belzer was here, and we lost him. He was shooting baskets. And, yeah, I remember I was starving because now planes don't feed you anymore. And I, and I got out, and it was 10 o'clock, and they picked me up at the airport. And there's nothing to eat except the Wohos I stopped in at. Wawas. And wow, oh, Wawas. <laughs> and I remember it was like Vinny, that Philly accent, which you don't have, because the woman saw me on Raymond. Get out, get out. Oh, my God, get out. Like David Brenner. <laughs> I could do the late David Brenner impression of him because of Philly. You know, you know. Very nasally, Philly. I wonder why. Is it the weather? But um, get out. I, yeah, I love Brenner. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I uh, yeah, I, uh, Cherry Hill, which, uh, yeah, they pick you up at the airport, and that's where all three stadiums are in a row, I remember. Right. They don't have that any other city, right? Where right. football, baseball, and basketball are all like, in the same block. Is right. That the, true? It's new because it used to be 
basketball and hockey were in one building and baseball and football were in one building. But then they built their own baseball stadium, they built their own football stadium, and they built the other one. And when I came back to visit, you know, when I first started dating my girlfriend, I had been back for a long time. And she picked me up at the airport, and I'm a big sports fan, I'm a big Philadelphia sports fan. And I was like a kid. I was like, oh my God. And you could see, like, from the airport, you could see, like, the inside of the football stadium. And it's, it's very different. Why is Philadelphia, they say, the nastiest fans? You know, okay. It comes from, well, first of all, they always say Philadelphia booed Santa Claus. But the fact is, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you this story. I was at a party with a guy I went to high school who lived in Santa Monica. His buddy was the cousins of the guy who was Santa Claus. He told me Santa Claus, his cousin, was a drunk who went to every game dressed like Santa Claus. <laughs> every game dressed like Santa Claus was drunk, obnoxious. Well, there was a big game at Franklin Field, and it snowed that day. And the Santa Claus couldn't get in from New Jersey. So they said, hey, we need a Santa Claus. You're in a Santa Claus suit. Get out there. So he went out there, and everyone knew him as a drunk, so they all booed him. So that's the that's the true story behind the Santa Claus. And it's just, they people, you know, there are sports fans who are idiots in Philadelphia, but there's sports fans anywhere that are idiots. I think it's just angst and anger. The Eagles never won anything. Our teams stink a lot. They kept. Are they like Cleveland where they came close but haven't won anything? Well, the Eagles have made two Super Bowls. The baseball team, the football team, and the hockey, the hockey team have won. But I just think it's, you know, Philadelphia's a very passionate city. And I don't know. It's like I don't see it. But, of course, I'm a fan. But, I mean, I've gone to L.A. Dodgers games, which, you know, I'm afraid, you're gonna, I'm afraid you might get beat up with those fans. <laughs> right. No, I remember the, the Sixers. Oh, no, they did win. They did win with Dr. J, right? Right. And, uh, Andrew Tony. Yeah, but that was years ago. That was, you know, that's the thing. And the yeah, Philly, the Phillies, the Phillies won. Doing stand up. Yeah, yes. Phillies won. When it was four, years. four, four. Yeah, with Moses Malone. Now I got to ask you about stand up again. You said you were opening for Norm McDonald. When was that? That was like uh, like last year. Actually, what happened was um, I stopped doing it, and then he heard, uh, "Hey, you want to open for me?" And I knew him, you know, from. LA and I used to hang out with him. So at first it was a lot of fun because I wasn't sure what was next with my career. I got burnt out to auditioning. I wasn't sure what to write next. And I thought, Hey, it's like golfing. Not that I golf like I'm in retirement. We just go to cities, no pressure. I'm not looking to do a special. I'm not looking to have an album. I'm just, you know, doing these old jokes and some new ones that, all his crowds are great because they're already um, pumped up. And But then Norm is not the most uh, capable, meaning I, I have to be his handler. He doesn't know how to get to the hotel. He, does, he you know, everything, uh, he doesn't know how to do Uber. He doesn't know, he never has his wallet with him. So <laughs> it became a lot of pressure. Like, I have to, like, someone hey, comp them, or hey, where's the Wi-Fi? And so it became less and less fun, I have to say, um, uh, just working with Norm. He's, he's, he's exactly what, not exactly, but he's what you would think he would be like, a genius, funny, but just a little bit out of his mind. 
Now, did you enjoy getting back up on stage because it had been a while? And did you feel, as you said, you were like just going for fun. Did you feel it was different because when you wrote the book back then, you were doing it, you know, you want, everyone wanted to get that big break. Well, now you've had a good career. So did you sit there and just go on stage and say, really, I have nothing to lose? And then also, yeah. you, have, you have face recognition. Right. People know you now. So the people know your name. They've seen you. You've been on so many TV shows. Was it easier to go on stage when you didn't care and then you had the recognition? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would even open with, hey, do I look familiar? And it's, oh, Raymond, this, that. And, and they were kind of excited that a bonus, like, not that I'm as big as Norm by any stretch, but... You know, hey, we thought just some Joe Schmo opening act. I know this guy. Oh, this is fun. And those are some good jokes. So, yeah, it was, again, it was, it, there was nothing to lose. So in one way, that made it fun. No pressure. But then there'd be pressure from Norm, like, uh, you're not doing enough time. I did a half hour. No, you didn't. <laughs> you know, well, whatever. Sometimes I'd introduce him and he wouldn't be there. He'd be in the bathroom or somewhere or, you know, so uh, craziness. And um, <clears throat> But I think maybe that was the problem also, that there was nothing really at stake. I really, I know, like I said, it was fun if I was in retirement and this was the only thing. But, and like I said earlier, I couldn't go as deep as I um, could get with writing, but stand-up jokes and and it was, it was a novelty but i don't i didn't love it where i had to do it so when it started getting a little bit weird where i realized um you know uh you don't know i, I don't want to really have a boss and norm would act like a boss sometimes and i don't have a boss and i said i gotta do my own thing again and so then i started exploring this idea so as i was on the road with him I'd come back and do more interviews and was building up the story and, and saying, you know, it, I, it stopped being fun, to be honest, uh, with Norm. It just, yeah. Would you? Being, and I kept saying, Norm, this has to be fun. He'd go up the handle about something. So, yeah. Speaking of Philly, I'm doing Todd Glass's uh, uh, podcast tonight. Okay, now where that's uh, you recording that in LA though, right? Yes, yes, yes. Now, now yeah, he's a Philly guy. Yeah, he's he was. So he started when he was like sixteen, like he something crazy, yeah. And um, he used to be neighbors year uh, with uh, growing up with my girlfriend from high school who moved to my hometown was neighbors with her. So he's like, I remember she when I first started dating her in high school. She's like. Oh, I want to do college. I mean, when I get out of college, I want to do comedy. She's like, "Do you ever hear of Todd Glass? He was our neighbor." And I said, "It's just a small, small world." Wow! But now, now when I'll you were tell me, say hi. Tell me now when you were doing stand up uh, just recently. What? How did you pick your old bits you would do? And did you still have fun? Did they feel fresh when you did them? Recently with Norm, yeah. They. It was weird, but like, yeah, a lot, a lot of the weird jokes don't work anymore. You got, I became more communicative, more of a real person. The weird stuff didn't work anymore. So, um, uh, so the more conversational stuff, they were still twenty years, twenty years old, twenty five. So a lot 
it was a mix. Like a lot of jokes were about, like you said, me being someone they sort of know and talking about working with Larry David and, and Raymond. So some of the stuff was about TV shows I've been on, which is newer. Some stuff was new material that hit me, but a lot of it was old. So it, it, it was fresh to them, luckily, that they were still laughing at it. So I think the thing with Norm was we'd only tour one. He only liked to go out of town once a month. I did it for about 11 months. So if it was every week, I think I, it would have been really not fun, much more unfun than it became doing old, old, old jokes. Um, so it, it was, the way I look at it, it's like a skill I have where if someone wants me, I, I can slot together my act. But I think if I did it too much, it would become like, why am I doing this? I like to, so I like to write these stories, just keep them much fresher. Now, with your book, do you plan to do a book tour, or and did you do one for the Seinfeld book? Besides the... the no, those were digital only. Uh, I had the book, Maybe We'll Have You Back. That's where I did the Jewish Book Festival circuit. I, I was St. Louis. I was, uh, where was I? Atlanta, all over. And, 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 um, just, just with this, this podcasting, and 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 I did I Miss in the Morning in New York, Artie Lang's podcast in Jersey. So I kind of just just go around promoting it, but not where I'm at bookstores, but just Kindle sale. Now, as this because this book's done and under the in the you know out now, are you gonna are you want to keep writing books and do you have an idea for your next one or is it something that yeah yep i have i don't want to jinx and talk about it right now but i have another one that i've been writing so yes this is my passion later in life um just we again like i said it's not a crowd and a crowd that they drink in and want to you know be laugh hysterically it could be more subtle take the story this you know Five Minutes of Kill had a lot of emotion in it, sadness, uh, depth. So that's the kind of stuff I, I like writing. Now, what is your writing process for these books? Do you actually, because some people will sit up and just write, you know, or they'll make a plan to write. Do you just write when something comes to your, comes into your mind? Like for the new book you're going to work on, will you sit there and actually schedule, okay, I have a timeline, here's when I need it done, or you just write it and say, okay, let's see when it gets done? Uh... Yeah, no, I really consume a lot of my day just walking around, trying to structure it. Uh, yeah, just in restaurants and coffee places. That's my offices. And I just, I'm stuck, I walk. So it just becomes all-consuming to me, but uh, but I really enjoy it. Now, are you still going out and auditioning a lot, or are you just holding up for a little bit? or? You know, it's kind of, like they say, a mutual decision. Like, it kind of died down, but I like it. I did a part a few months ago on the show Bones. I like so Bones. So I do audition here and there, but not as much. And I'm I'm really very happy with that pace, you know, because it really takes up your day. You're memorizing the lines, trying to get it right. What do I wear? You drive there. You're nervous. You come home. You unwind, and most you don't get. So I I kind of like this pace of a, you know. I, most of the acting parts I ended up getting as my career progressed is if someone wanted me and had me in mind. So I'm very amenable to that, but I don't need to be running around auditioning from show to show. Now, do you think you'll do stand-up again, or 
No. Possibly, possibly. Again, I, I don't, I don't need, need, need to do it. So, if someone wants me for something that feels really special and fun, absolutely. Actually, the last thing I did with Scroban had some charity. Okay, and, I, uh, I, I went the first two years of that. Yes, yes, I did that. So, if someone wants me, of course, yeah. But I'm not, it's not the thing I love most, stand-up comedy. I'll tell you who you should hit up, because I would have, I was booked for it tonight, but I moved, and she has a great show once a month on Tuesdays, Wendy Liebman. She has... Oh, yeah, what's her show like? It's got, like, tonight, it's got Kevin Nealon, Russell Peters, Kathy Ladman, Mark Brazil. Um, It's just, it's a stand-up place, it's at Vitella's in Studio City, and the crowd just, they come once a month, and, you know, John Cryer goes, all these different people go, they go there for comedy, and you'd be perfect. I'm going to tell her to put you on the show if, you're, if you'll if you do right, it. All right, all right. So, anyway, man, so give give your, uh, twi- do, do, are you on Twitter, Fred? Yeah, it's Fred underscore Stoller. And do you tweet a lot, or are you, are you, are you a busy Twitter guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just tweeted a joke about this, that I'm, I'm a rebel. I, I, I'm doing a call-in to a podcast with only 30% battery. <laughs> I remember seeing that you. I'm, I'm a loose cannon. You don't know what you're getting with me. That uh, Those are the jokes I did in the, in the HBO thing. I'm a thrill seeker. I drank milk and expired yesterday. I don't care. I was on a bus. <laughs> I took to the driver while the bus is in motion. So I used to do those jokes that... I, rem- I think I'm such a rebel. I, I remember so, seeing... Uh, yeah, I tweeted a rebel joke just now. I saw you... I used to work the door at the Comedy Factory outlet. And I remember seeing you... Wow. And you gave Steve Thomas, who is a, a young other doorman, this young 17-year-old chubby black kid, and I don't think it would have fit him, but you he found your NBC jacket and you gave him your jacket. I did? Wow. Yeah, I remember that. I said you could have it? You said take it. And he said, all right, I don't think it fit him, but he was all happy because you gave it to him. Anyway. I'm not that bad a guy. So you're a good guy. So the book, uh, you can find it on Amazon.com, right? Five Minutes to Kill, yes. Okay. And thank you for buying it, Steve. You know, you... You shelled out a dollar ninety nine. I mean, you did your research. I, I have, I had, I had a gift card from Rich Shiner because I helped him out with some stuff. So, <laughs> of course, so he gave you an Amazon gift card. Yeah, because I helped him get some podcasts and stuff. And uh, again, so we used a lot of stuff for moving, but then I used, I had some left, so I got this. And now you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get, hey, the, I'm gonna get the leftovers. Yes. So I want to worked out. I want to thank you for coming on, Fred. And people go check him thank out. Thank you, Steve. And follow him on Twitter. Go get his book. Follow me on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over six hundred episodes up there. You can email me, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. And go to my other website, StopTheSalt.com. When I had that health problem, it was five years ago. Actually, it was five years from a few days from now when I was in the hospital with a heart problem. I wrote a cookbook. It's low sodium, 120 recipes, no pictures to confuse you, none of that crap. So go buy it at stopthesalt.com. You can buy it at amazon.com. If you buy it at stopthesalt.com, I make more money. So people go buy Fred's book and go to Amazon. It's five minutes to kill. Look up Fred Stoller. Follow him on Twitter. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.